Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. This is an important story that the Institute for Justice got involved with, and I have in my hands literally just the opinion written by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. And so this story is going around right now. It's been reported in the news, and the Institute for Justice has reported it in their own newsletter. And I've had a whole bunch of people send it to me, and people who support the Institute for Justice uh, got updates on this. But this is a civil asset forfeiture case, and this is a perfect example of the kind of case that the average person could not handle on their own, although this woman put up a valiant effort on her own before the IJ got involved. But it's a crazy story. But as of right now, she's, uh, she's still alive as far as her legal situation goes, and this is the kind of thing where, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if they just give her her money back. But here's what's happening in the case of U.S. versus Crystal Starling. Crystal Starling is her name. And by the way, one party to the case is $8,040 of U.S. currency. The case caption actually says, U.S. versus Crystal Starling, comma, $8,040 in U.S. currency, defendant. So she is listed as a claimant appellant, and the money is listed as a defendant. And that's how they do these things. So the story is that police officers seized just over $8,000 in cash while searching her home as part of a drug trafficking investigation into her then-boyfriend. And by the way, her boyfriend's name is never spelled out in here. They, 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 they actually let him go by initials. So the local police turned over the $8,000 to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA, as we like to call them, which initiated an administrative forfeiture procedure to claim the money as proceeds from drug sales. Uh, Now, acting on her own, she was pro se, as they say, uh, she filed a claim to the assets, forcing the government to terminate its administrative seizure and open a judicial forfeiture proceeding in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of New York. Now, she did fail to timely oppose the ensuing judicial proceeding, and the clerk of the court entered a default against the funds. See, they defaulted the money because the money didn't defend itself properly. So Starling, still acting pro se, sent letters to the district court and the U.S. Attorney's Office seeking leave to file a belated claim to the seized assets. Be aware that the court rules, both federal and most states, say that if you miss a deadline— and you have a good reason as to why you missed the deadline, you can contact them and say, look, I missed the deadline, but here is a reason why I think you should forgive me for being tardy on that. And the court rules allow a court under proper circumstances to say, you know something, you're late, fine, we'll let you go ahead. And I've seen more defaults get set aside by judges because an attorney comes into court and says, your honor, my client missed the deadline, here's why. And the judge goes, okay, I'll set it aside. So that happens all the time. The problem here is, no. So she was still acting pro se at this point. The district court held that she had not shown excusable neglect. They denied her an extension of time to file a claim, and they entered a final default judgment against, not her, but against the money. The money lost. You'd think the money would try harder, but no. So the court holds that the district court made a mistake in granting default judgment to the government. Starling's letters are properly viewed as seeking both to lift the entry of default and to be granted leave to file an untimely claim to the assets. So understood, her motion should have been assessed under the more permissive good cause standard, 
as is any other motion to lift entry of default in a civil suit. So they vacate the grant of the motion to strike and the entry of the default judgment, and they remand for further proceedings. And so here's a little bit more of an explanation, because the court apparently felt it was important just to give that little summary there and say, here's what happened. Okay, and here's how we rule. Go. However, keep this in mind, that uh, more details are, police officers seized just over $8,000 when they searched her home. They were carrying out, the police were, carrying out, uh, an investigation into her then-boyfriend. So there's no question. It was her home, but she had a boyfriend. The local police came upon that $8,000, which they turned over to the DEA, and the DEA initiated an administrative forfeiture procedure to claim the funds as proceeds from drug sales. What evidence did they have that this was the proceeds of drug sales? Well, they found it in her home and her boyfriend they think may have been doing something bad. So acting on her own, she filed a claim to the assets, which forced the government to then terminate the administrative seizure and move this to court for judicial forfeiture proceedings. As required, the government provided notice of the proceedings on its website and by mail sent directly to her. Now, she claims she didn't see the notice, and after months went by without response to the forfeiture action, the U.S. Attorney's Office moved for entry of default against the money, and the clerk entered the default. Now, the woman, acting on her own, then sent several letters to the district court and the U.S. Attorney's Office seeking leave to file a belated claim to the seized assets. The district court held that she had not shown excusable neglect, denied her an extension of time to file a claim, and entered a default judgment against the seized assets or the $8,040. On appeal, she argues principally the district court made a mistake by assessing her letters under the strict excusable neglect standard and not the uh, lesser uh, good cause standard, which would be uh, something that she could have reached, apparently. So they claim, this is what the government claims, they claim that her boyfriend allegedly sold drugs to an undercover officer or officers as part of a state investigation into trafficking. The police then executed a warrant to search her home on West Main Street in Rochester, New York. I guess it's an apartment, but it gets repeatedly referred to as both her home or her apartment. But they searched her apartment. There they seized uh, currency. They found $7,500 in a top dresser drawer of the master bedroom. They also found $540 in U.S. currency in the pants pocket of a pair of women's jeans that were laying on the floor in the hallway adjacent to the master bedroom. We can speculate all we want about whose jeans those were. There's a man and a woman involved. You can, you, well, maybe we don't have enough facts. Who knows? Also found with the cash were some digital scales uh, and some prescription drugs and also mail addressed to the boyfriend. So apparently the boyfriend... Uh, some of his mail was also at this apartment. Now, substantial quantities of drugs were found, allegedly, at a different residence that the government believed was connected to the boyfriend, but not in the apartment that is uh, occupied by the girlfriend, who is, of course, the one who's fighting here to get her money back. So they arrested the boyfriend, and they charged him with state drug possession offenses, and local authorities turned the seized money over to the feds. Acting on her own, she filed a remission petition and an administrative claim against the seized funds. And by operation of law, 
her claim terminated the administrative forfeiture proceedings and required the government to initiate a judicial forfeiture action in court, which would be the Western District of New York. The U.S. Attorney's Office, the Western District, filed a complaint against the seized funds in April of 21, alleging they were proceeds of the boyfriend's drug trafficking. The complaint acknowledged that the woman was interested in the seizure and had earlier filed a claim with the DEA. Consistent with its obligations under the federal rules of civil procedure, which governs civil forfeiture actions, the government provided notice of the action by posting on the government's forfeiture website for 30 days. And I've joked about this before. Uh, A lot of times the court rules will say you can notify somebody by posting it in a public place or posting it in the local newspaper. Who actually visits the federal government's forfeiture website to see what's being forfeited these days? And they, again, by the way, posted it there for 30 days. They also sent by FedEx a notice and copy of the complaint to her, which she says she did not get because she was out of town. And I was a little surprised by this, but apparently the rules here actually say that the government can serve notice to any person who reasonably appears to be a potential claimant uh, by any means reasonably calculated to reach the potential claimant. So if FedEx is reasonably calculated to reach the potential claimant, it's considered good service. And yet summons and complaints must be served a little bit more specifically than that. So uh, that's a concern, but she was out of town, she says, so she didn't see that, and that is one of the things that caused a problem here. In August, having not heard from Starling and no challenge to the forfeiture proceeding being made, the government moved forward and was granted a default. Roughly three months later, and before the government's motion for default had been granted, Starling sent the first of four undated letters to the U.S. Attorney's Office and the District Court. Uh, Still acting on her own, she stated that the West Main Street apartment was her residence and that she was seeking return of the seized funds because it turns out that the boyfriend was acquitted, among other things. So they charged him with some drug-related offense, and he was found not guilty. At this point, the government apparently contacted her and offered to settle a forfeiture action by splitting the money. Give up your fight and let us keep half. And that is a common tactic they do. And here's the weird thing. I've, I've mentioned before the concept of a binary proposition. A binary proposition means that in some situations there are two choices, one of which is correct, one of which is incorrect. You cannot have both choices and you cannot have neither choice meaning pick one, okay? So either this money is the proceeds of something nefarious or it's not. If it's not, she gets it. If it is, she doesn't get it. So when the government says, fine, we'll split it with you. That is the same as Solomon and the baby and and the half thing, okay? It doesn't make any sense. You're going to keep the half that is connected to crime, and I get to keep the half that's not? Where, where does a half come from? Why not a third? Why not seven and sixteenths? So obviously, they just do this because, you know, the average person, when told, well, you might get zero, do you want four? Some people will jump on that. So they offered to split it with her, but she rejected the offer. And she declared that she'd like to move forward with court proceedings to have all of the funds returned to me promptly. The government moved to strike her letters as untimely, arguing that because she was given direct notice of this action, referring to the FedEx, that they said that she didn't respond in time. 
She responded that her untimely claim should be allowed by the district court because she had challenged the prior proceeding, and she contacted and followed the advice of the district attorney presiding over the case that resulted in these monies being confiscated. So she said that she even communicated with the district attorney about this. The government responded with affidavits from two assistant district attorneys who handled the prosecution of the boyfriend. One asserted that he had never communicated with her, but the other made the assertion that she did not recall ever communicating with the woman. So she replied by offering a description and documents evidencing two conversations she had um, and so on, but that's really not the point here. The district court interpreted her first and second letters as a claim to the assets in the judicial proceedings and the third and fourth letters as an opposition and reply to the government's motion to strike. The district court also considered whether Starling should be permitted to file a claim against the funds nunc pro tunc. <laughs> it considered this question in terms of excusable neglect and applied that standard and rejected the excuses that she offered because they say that that don't reach the right level of standard. So under Rule 55, this court writes, default judgment begins with a motion by a party demonstrating that the non-movement has failed to plead or otherwise defend. Once the motion is granted, the clerk of the court enters a default. After a default's been entered, the movement must apply for entry of a default judgment, which is a final adjudication of the claims, which process may entail fact-finding or hearings by the district court to establish remedies or quantum, that is to calculate the judgment. Rule 55 sets out alternative standards that a defaulting party must satisfy in order to resist this process. If the missing party appears when the clerk of the court has entered a default but before the judgment's been entered, the district court may set aside the default for a good cause. Turns out that's what the rule actually says, for a good cause. But if final judgment has already been entered, the delinquent party must attack the judgment under the exacting standards of Rule 60 by showing, among other things, excusable neglect. Entry of default therefore operates as a final warning before the absent party suffers the hard consequences of a judgment. Because she submitted her letters to the court before final judgment, she asks that her challenge be construed like any other to an entry of default under the permissive good cause standard. The government reads the rules differently under Supplemental Rule 5, uh, G5. A party given direct notice of a forfeiture complaint must contest the complaint by filing a claim to the assets before the deadline specified in the direct notice. Because she failed to file a claim within the 32 days specified in the notice, the government argues that she is subject to Federal Rule 6's general principle that when an act may or must be done within a specified time and the time has expired, the court may extend the deadline only if the party failed to act because of excusable neglect. So this court writes, it does not appear that the government holds itself to the scrupulous punctuality that it demands of a pro se litigant. So they're kind of pointing out that you got to let both sides use the same rules and apply them equally. The question in this appeal is whether the district court was required to use the good cause standard generally applicable to default under federal rules or the excusable neglect standard uh, elsewhere. Ascertaining the appropriate standard by which to assess the letters sent by Starling depends first on identifying the relief her letters sought. And they go through this and explain that she was, in fact, seeking the relief that she should have been seeking. And then it goes on to point out how these things rise to that letter, or that level. 
Starling's letters are therefore properly viewed as a dual motion, seeking both to lift the entry of the default and to file a claim against the seized funds. So as the Sixth Circuit recognized when faced with the same question, there are materially different standards in determining whether to excuse noncompliance or to adhere strictly to the rules. And so I can summarize it this way for you. Because of the technicalities of this case, they seize the money. She says, it's my money. So it gets turned over to the DEA. The DEA starts an administrative proceeding against the money. The rules say that if she wants to, she can ask that, be brought into court, and she wants to litigate it as an interested party because she says, hey, that money is mine. So once she does that, they then send the stuff over to the court, and it's going to be litigated in court. While there... They apparently sent a notice to her by FedEx to her apartment that she didn't get, that she says she didn't get, and she didn't respond in time. So they entered a default. However, she then responded and said, look, set the default aside. I have a good reason why I didn't respond, i.e. I didn't get your FedEx, and I'd like to argue this on the merits. And they're saying, no, you, you, you can't do that because you're in default. Once you've been in default, you've got to have this excusable neglect standard, whereas it's just good cause. And her good cause is, I was out of town and didn't get the FedEx. So somebody delivers a FedEx to an apartment? Um, well, that's not a foolproof way of serving somebody. I know the court rules allow it. I've actually, I'm, I'll give you my favorite story involving service. As an attorney, I'm allowed to serve defendants in cases that I've filed. I've actually hand-served somebody myself, walked up to them and said, are you so-and-so? Yes, boom, you are served. And I've actually had a defendant come into court and say, Your Honor, I was never served. And the judge looks at me and goes, "Uh, how were they served, counsel? I go, I hand-served him myself. Judge looks at the guy and goes, have you ever met Mr. Leto before? And how do you get around that? Because I can tell you the day, time, address, who answered the door. And uh, yeah, but people will sometimes claim they weren't served. But on the other hand, I've also had people tell me that they sent a FedEx someplace and the people say, I never got the FedEx. And you go, look, was there a signature on the FedEx? No, no signature was required. What happened to the FedEx? Uh, It got stuck in somebody's door. Okay, then what? You know, so that's, that's a really, really weird situation. So it sounds to me like she has good cause. And so all that's happened here is the Court of Appeals has overturned the ruling of the lower court. The default is going to get removed. The case is going to be reopened, and she can litigate this. Now, you might say, but Steve, it sounds to me like they're winning here. The feds are winning here because they've run this woman through the ringer. She's had to do all this to get her $8,000 back. Well, the reason she can do that is that the Institute for Justice finally got involved in this. And despite the fact that she was doing a pretty good job on her own, institutes got involved and they're helping her on this. So now they take it back down to court. They're going to litigate over the $8,000. And guess what they think of your offer to split the money? And so I've mentioned this before. Civil asset forfeiture is the idea that they take money from somebody and say, well, We think the money was either being used for a crime or was the fruit of a crime or somehow it's connected to crime. Therefore, we can just seize it. And if you want your money back, you've got to sue us and, in essence, prove that your money is innocent. So not only do they take something from you, 
but they also have flipped the burden of proof in such a way that you have to prove the money is innocent. Proving the money is innocent can be difficult and expensive. And so the government, of course, doesn't have to spend money on legal fees because they've got attorneys sitting around. Just send them in, and you've got to hire an attorney. So let's suppose that you hire an attorney who charges you $10,000 to get your $8,000 back. If you win, you're still down two. And that's assuming you get an attorney to do this for $10,000. So what they do, and by they I mean the government attorneys, is they go, oh, let's just make them run up some monstrous legal fees. And um, that's why you often see these seizures that are relatively small amounts of money. A couple thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, because all of that is well below the threshold of what an attorney would quote you and say, if I'm going to charge you my full hourly rate, we can't go to court and get this back for two thousand dollars in attorney fees. We can't get it back for ten thousand dollars. And so they know that the average person is going to look at it and go, unless it's a matter of principle, it's not worth pursuing. And as a matter of principle, guess what? Government doesn't care. And so if they seize money from 100 people, how many people fight it? And how many people actually fight it through to the end? So that's one of the reasons I like the Institute for Justice so much is that they will fight this on principle. And the Institute for Justice, of course, is a nonprofit organization that's supported by the generosity of people who like what they're doing. And they are often in these cases that otherwise no one else could touch for economic reasons. It's a simple math problem. How much money will you spend to get your money back? And so... There you go. So this woman now gets her day in court, and she has a very good law firm behind her. (laughs) So we'll see what happens. The Institute for Justice will update us on this. I assure you they will. And when they do, I will bring you that. So that's the story of Crystal Starling and her $8,000 in U.S. currency and the United States of America just coming back from the Second Circuit, back down to the Western District of New York, and there'll be further matters litigated. We'll see what happens. Questions or comments, put them below. Otherwise, I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Lato's Law. A programmer is someone who solves a problem you didn't know you had in a way you don't understand.